Hello and welcome to Frankenwine, the show where two sisters tell science that it may take our lives, but it will never take our freedom over a few glasses of wine. So who are we and why are we qualified to shepherd you on your journey of scientific exploration? I'm Katie and I'm a scientist working on cancer research. I study genes and grow cells, but over my career I've studied everything from bacteria to viruses to memories and hormones. And I'm Emma, and I can honestly say I'm not qualified at all, except to say that I'm Katie's sister, and I've heard her talking about it very passionately for many years, although she does call me a muggle. That's why we're also going to be talking about wine. Lots of wine. So why not pour yourself a large one, snap on those headphones, and join us for some secretly educational fun. We promise you won't feel a thing. week we're learning about the surprising history of a pretty serious drug. But first, some light refreshment. So this week you're making me drink probably my least favourite of all red wines. Why are you do why are you doing this to me? Why Pinot Noir? Oh, I love a Pinot Noir. Mm. Well I'll explain why. Basically, Carrie Mullis, the discoverer of PCR, one of my favourite techniques. Mm. After he'd gone through his drive through the mountains and come up with this technique. Amplifying he, DNA. Exactly. He, I <laughs> learned something. You're never going to forget that now, are you? <laughs> <laughs> so he got back to his cabin, which... Of course. Of course he had a cabin in the mountains in California. And cracked open a bottle of the finest Pinot Noir he could find. Um, and that's the end of the story. And I like Pinot Noir. Do you know what Pinot means? No. It actually means uh, pinecone. So apparently they've called it this because of the the shape of a of a bunch of grapes. It's kind of like a kind of like a pinecone. Oh, I get it. But don't worry, I have better facts. <laughs> I have another fact as well oh, um, really? about Pinot Noir. But you do yours first. You're going to interrupt my facts? Yeah, sorry. Okay, go on. No, no, do you, yours just you in do, case there's repetition. Well, no, you do yours first because they're probably better than mine. <laughs> well, okay, it's believed to be one of the oldest wine making grapes in the world. Did you know that? No, I didn't know that. <laughs> and uh, we know it was enjoyed by the Romans. And Cistercian monks who produced it for the sacrament. Pinot Noir today is a pretty cool grape. Want to know why? Why? Because it literally tends to grow in cooler climates like Burgundy. Fact. Mm. Um, Okay, you'll like this one. In terms of genetics, Pinot Noir is famous for frequent mutations. So changing its characteristics like its tannins, colour and significantly its taste. No way. So apparently there are more than 50 clones of Pinot Noir officially recognised in France. Um, although I guess that's not a huge surprise for such an old grape. That it's highly mutable. Yeah. Well, not really. I mean, we're pretty old. We're not as mutable <laughs> as, as some newer organisms. That's true. Well, my fact was going to be... Well, it's not really a fact. It's kind of more of an ane- anecdote. Okay. Um, so this, there's this quote from the film called Sideways, which is a really great, really great, really great, We should not be allowed to work. <laughs> there's a film called Sideways, which is about wine. So all the wine enthusiasts out there, if you haven't seen it, it's really good because it's it's quite depressing but uplifting at the same time. Is it on Netflix? I think it is on Netflix actually, or it's somewhere. Anyway, um, so the main protagonist loves a Pinot Noir, like me. Um, and his love interest at, at one point asks him why. And he says something about it being, it's thick-skinned, it's temperamental, it ripens early, it's really hard to grow. 
He says it's not a survivor like Cabernet, which can pretty much just grow anywhere. (laughs) Yeah, but that's because if, um, yeah, because he talked about it's thick-skinned. It's so thick-skinned that if you put a Pinot Noir grape in Argentina, it would literally cook in the skin. Whoa. Okay, maybe not literally. Yeah, okay. (laughs) <laughs> but it wouldn't work as a wine, right? No, so it has it to be really specific. It, yeah, it, I, don't, I don't want something as old and thick-skinned. No, I like it because it knows what it wants. <laughs> it doesn't just take anything like a Cabernet Sauvignon. Okay, let's stop personifying the grape. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Pinot needs constant care. Of course it does. It's so bloody complicated to make. What do you give the wine out of 10? I'd give it a solid... Eight out of ten. Generous. <laughs> I'd give it a six. Six? <laughs> yeah, oh I don't, I don't like it anymore. You're so picky. Mm. It's delicious. So why don't you make your own minds up and try it for yourselves? do the iPhone, gene sequencing, and the novel Frankenstein have in common? Hmm. Well, I love novels, as you know, so I'm trying to think how Mary Shelley could possibly connect to Steve Jobs and gene editing? No. Gene sequencing. Oh. The common feature between all of those is that they may not have been possible without the recreational use of some drugs. Drugs? And here I'm talking mostly about psychedelics. Uh, of course, because Mary Shelley used drugs in Via Villa Diodati or whatever it was called with Byron, yeah, right? You're exactly right. Yeah, she went on holiday basically with <laughs> a bunch of uh, romantic literary fr- literary figures of the time, including her uh, future husband and Lord Byron, um, and they apparently took loads of opium while they were there. That's it. So it's all about the romantics and their love of opiates. Yeah. So what about Steve Jobs? Have you heard about his associations with psychedelics before? Yes. He, well, he did some drugs. Yes, obviously. That, that's pretty much it. <laughs> he did some drugs. But he did cite LSD as, or taking LSD as one of the most profound experiences of his life. Profound experiences. I mean, Steve Jobs is a pretty inspirational guy for the field that I work in and, well, pretty much anyone works in, actually. He was really inspirational. And I sort of imagine him as the sort of person who never slept, you know, just kept working, 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 innovating, innovating, innovating. Mm. So what about gene sequencing? Oh, yeah. H- how could that possibly be affected by drugs? <laughs> okay, so this is one of my favourite stories that I remember hearing about when I was at uni. So sequencing, or in other words, the decoding of the genetic code written in DNA would probably not have been possible were it not for the development of this technique called the polymerase chain reaction, or PCR. Polymerase? <laughs> polymerase the polymerase chain reaction okay polymerase chain reaction got it so what what is this story so this was back in the 80s and there's a guy called dr carrie mullis um who was working for a company trying to come up with a better way of amplifying dna and analyzing specific genes so for some context dna is really tiny right i mean it has to be to fit in your body exactly yes. and we've got loads and loads of it so they say that if you lined up all your DNA molecules in your entire body, it would it would go from Earth to the sun back again a hundred times. 
each person. Exactly. What? I know. And so we have so many genes and we have so much going on. How are we supposed to read it all to understand what all these genes are doing, right? I still can't go over that back to the, to the, sun, the sun and back thing. That's crazy. <laughs> I know. So yeah, it's pretty complex. And before this time that Kerry Mullis invented PCR, we didn't really have a, an easy or a cheap or reliable way of reading this DNA. So PCR basically did this. So the story <laughs> is that he spent a long time thinking about this. But one day, he decided to take some LSD. Why? That wasn't allowed. <laughs> well, no, it wasn't allowed, but he took it anyway. <laughs> We're not exactly sure. Maybe he was trying to figure out this problem and thought that it could help him. I don't know. Anyway, he then went on a long drive through the mountains in California. And as the drug started to take effect, he started to see in front of him coils of DNA and other electrically charged molecules assembling and unzipping and multiplying in a way that would make DNA, make reading DNA easy and cheap and quick for the first time. Um, so he won the Nobel Prize for this technology a mere 10 years later. So I don't want to go too much into this technology, but it is fair to say that this technique has revolutionised medical research and I think without it we probably wouldn't have been able to put the human genome together in 2002 or we might have done by now but it would have taken probably this much longer to get there so on an LSD trip yeah he discovered how to amplify DNA exactly you've got it yeah and he said that after the night after he discovered this he woke up and he said that he felt like he was waking up in a new world which he probably was a brave new world exactly <laughs> Okay, so I get the feeling you could tell me a lot about how handy the PCR technique is, but that's probably a bit boring. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it's probably fascinating if you're a molecular biologist geek like me, but for the rest of the world, like I think <laughs> it's probably less boring. So instead, I thought we could go into what these drugs that people have linked to their discoveries are, what they do to the brain or the mind to enable these discoveries, and how science can use them for good. Okay, so we're talking about drugs. Yes. Fine, but what drugs are we talking about? So for today's purposes, I'm going to focus mostly on psychedelics, which are the drugs that induce these really vivid hallucinations and affect your mind in a way that alters your perception of reality. These include LSD, or lysergic acid diethylamide, and psilocybin, which is the active ingredient in magic mushrooms. But those can't be the only drugs that would be useful to medical research. No, exactly. So I'm also going to be talking about MDMA, street name Ecstasy. I've heard it described as Mandy as well. Mandy. I mean, yeah, <laughs> I think that's like a really naughty's term for it. Really. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we're, we're also discussing a little bit about marijuana. Marijuana. I can't ever say marijuana. I have to say marijuana. Why? <laughs> You're an adult, right? Yeah. <laughs> Um, Those aren't psychedelics. So no, they're not psychedelics. And they have very different effects, but they're still really, really interesting. So what is LSD? And don't give me that acid name Lysergic again. Lysergic acid diethylamine. Okay, she did it. <laughs> so LSD was first discovered in 1938 by a man called Albert Hoffman, who was a Swiss chemist. He was working for a company who were looking for new therapeutic drugs from natural sources. So LSD is actually a derivative of this fungus called ergot, which grows on grains like rye and wheat. That we eat? Yeah. But presumably it doesn't have ergot on it. Well, funnily enough, there are, there are stories of kind of in the medieval times when they had barns full of wheat and stuff like that that were left to grow and grow and, and sit there all summer long. 
um, and they ended up growing loads of this fungus and people would, would eat them and, and go a bit crazy and have hallucinations. Oh, no yeah. But this, well, I was going to say this Albert Hoffman guy must have been the first guy to go on an acid trip, but I suppose not if in the medieval ages they were doing it by accident. Well, he was the first guy to purposefully go on an acid trip. Okay. So he accidentally ingested some of the chemical that he'd isolated um, five years after first isolating it. And then, only then, did he realise it's quite profound effects. Um, but he purposefully ingested a really specific amount a few months later when he's like, I need to figure out what this drug is, what I've discovered. Mm. Um, and that day is known as Bicycle Day. <laughs> as <Why>? after- <laughs> Well, basically, after he'd ingested this, he, he said to himself that he was going to go home. So he got on his bicycle. I think... It was in Switzerland at the time. So you can imagine beautiful Switzerland anyway. Yeah, I'm, I'm imagining Lake Geneva. Exactly. He probably wasn't there, but you know, let's go with it. <laughs> Somewhere there. And he's on his bicycle. And on his bicycle ride home, he starts feeling the effects of this drug for the first time, really. Um, so this is known as Bicycle Day as the first purposeful acid trip. Don't take acid and cycle, folks. <laughs> but he, he's been quoted in saying that LSD wanted to tell me something. It gave me an inner joy, an open-mindedness, a gratefulness, open eyes, and internal sensitivity for the miracles of creation. Okay. Isn't that nice? Yeah. Well, yeah, for drugs, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So he actually also used it throughout his life, and he died at 102. That's pretty old. Mm. Is there a secret there? (laughs) Well, I don't know about that, but he was was very old when he died. Um, So he's also responsible for isolating psilocybin. So he unintentionally created LSD but how did other people pick up on it what happened next yeah good question so so during the 50s and 60s when Albert Hoffman had started publishing on the effects of this um, drug people started considering it as a potentially interesting tool for psychiatry and psychotherapy because of the way that it because of the way that it affected the mind okay but towards the end of the 1960s, it had escaped the labs and become somewhat intertwined with the hippie youth culture. <laughs> hippie youth culture. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was a time of great social and cultural change. Exactly. So I can understand how a mind-bending drug would be attractive to people at the forefront of that and a nightmare for those who are trying to control this. Exactly. Um, so, I mean, there were obviously a number of reasons for why LSD and similar drugs was banned. Um, for med- medical and recreational use, both in kind of separate times. Medical too. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so it used to actually carry Grant. I think was uh, one of the people who was used, who was treated with LSD for um, depression. I think it was really Carrie Grant. Yeah, did not know. Mm. Anyway, um, but yeah, obviously, quite a few people had had bad trips. And like bad the orange guy. <laughs> potentially the orange guy i haven't found any sources to back that up but (laughs) i remember they told us that in school during the the drugs do not take drugs lesson (laughs) i think they told us a lot of things in school ever (laughs) anyway um so there's a really interesting uh scenario where there's this guy called timothy leary who was running experiments in his lab at harvard he was a psychologist um and he was actually running them with students and also prisoners and he claimed things like the murder rate had gone down by 90% or something, <laughs> which was just mad. Okay. Well, they were incarcerated when they yeah. were in the lab being forced to take drugs. Yeah, I mean, I don't know the details of the study, but <laughs> okay. there is some evidence that he skewed the data somewhat. 
whether or not on purpose. I think he was on drugs. Yeah, probably. Oh, no, he definitely was. <laughs> um, but yeah, so this kind of upset a lot of people at the university, some faculty members and also parents of the students who were going in and being treated. I'm not surprised. Yeah. But then also this this substance kind of leaked out into the general population and a lot of students started using it for their recreational use, which just, it just snowballed from there, basically. Mm. So this garnered both Timothy Leary and LSD a really, really bad reputation. Um, and he was famously, his research was monitored by the CIA for a really long time. He was sacked by Harvard. And Again, then, not surprised. Yeah. And then he got arrested by the FBI in 1972, I think. I wonder what happened to him. Yeah. So I, I don't think he went to prison in the end because mm. um, they kind of couldn't really find the laws yeah, to, to yeah, sentence him. Difficult. Where's, yeah. the, where's the criminality? I think actually the reason he was arrested was for possession of um, a joint, basically. But hold on, because I say criminality, because presumably this, these drugs... Oh, they, but they were illegal at this they stage. They were they were legal at this stage. They were and legal. By the end of the 60s and early 70s, they were illegal. Okay, got it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's funny that even Richard Nixon described him as the most dangerous man in America. Wow. Just a poor God, psychologist. How things have changed. I know. The most dangerous man in America in Nixon's time was a guy who created a drug and now arguably one of the most dangerous men in America is the is president. The, president. <laughs> <laughs> the 45th president of America, his name we refuse to state. Um, okay, so that's the history of psychedelics. Yes, okay. Thank you. Um, and it sounds like it's had a fairly rocky start. But, but what do those drugs actually do to the brain? Yeah, this is a really good question and something I've been looking into for a little while. But I am no neuroscientist, Emma. No, you are not. So for this, I thought we could maybe benefit from some expert knowledge. And for this, we've managed to speak to Joe Barnby, who is a cognitive neuropsychologist. Welcome, Joe. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks for being here. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about your research? Yeah, um, so my main area of research, well, I use pharmacological methods um, to kind of test certain brain regions. And what I'm interested in is whether specific brain regions underlie specific subjective experiences in psychosis. So at the moment, there's sort of a lot of evidence suggesting that um, the dopamine system is dysfunctional in psychosis. However, it doesn't really account for how that dysfunction leads to the specific subjective experiences you see in people that are quite unwell. For example, paranoia, mm-hmm. um, hearing voices that are quite distressing, this sort of thing. Let's go back to basics quickly. Dopamine system. Yes. Um, I realise that I am very convoluted when I talk about this. So the dopamine system sits in the midbrain and projects up to your frontal region of your brain. And uh, the hypothesis is um, that this region um, coordinates meaning in the things that we see in our environment. So the idea is that it tags certain pieces of information with meaning, and then that becomes integrated into into how we interpret the world. And dopamine, I mean, you you had me at dopamine. And then (laughs) then I thought, oh, okay, I sort of understand what you're saying. Dopamine is something we hear about a lot. Non-scientists, like me, would read about it in, I don't know, a magazine or or an article. Remind me what dopamine does and is. Yeah, um, so I think it's been a lot of media hype dopamine seems to pop up like every two years with some new fad so everyone always goes well this new fad is happening oh it's probably all the dopamine 
And it kind of seems a bit strange because we sort of talk about dopamine like it's a character in a play that seems to have this awful influence upon us. Uh, I suppose in an artistic way it kind of does, but only in the sense that it just encodes every single kind of behaviour that we do and forms a pattern behind it. So if I find that I'm enjoying watching TV a lot, um, my dopamine system will be encoded to make me feel like that's familiar and meaningful. Mm. Same thing if I'm looking at my phone all the time and it's giving me pleasure, my dopamine system's going to encode that as a thing that I do habitually. Mm. But it's not necessarily like an evil thing in itself. <laughs> it's really important, for example, in just remembering how you get to work or remembering to eat or kind of remembering to do things that are important to you. It's probably being reinforced by dopamine. So then on to the crucial question. Joe told us how psychedelics and other drugs remove the restrictions that our brain places on these signaling molecules that govern our behaviour. LSD and kind of psychedelic compounds, you might have heard of psilocybin or DMT, Mm -hmm. uh, they're all 5-HT2A receptor agonists. Now, 5-HT2A is another word for, it's another name or the technical name for what you might have heard as serotonin. Okay? Heard of that? You heard of that? Excellent. (laughs) So, these psychedelic compounds... They're agonists at these receptor sites. Now, what that means is that they attach to... It's like a kind of baseball and mitt style um, action. So the the psychedelic is like a baseball and your receptors are like a mitt that are catching these psychedelics. So serotonin from psychedelics will will bind to uh, these 5-HT2A receptors a lot more. They seem to cause a lot of very strange experiences. So um, we know... Uh, whether from personal use or from um, online kind of reports that you can see that they kind of create a lot of strange hallucinations, um, feeling of kind of, they call it ego boundlessness, so the feeling that kind of yourself is melting into the environment and you kind of feel at one with a lot of things. So how does something like serotonin attaching to a specific receptor affect this really complex experience? The answer is, actually, we don't know. So we know that that's kind of the mechanism of action, but we also know that underneath all of that serotonin activation is a huge cascade of neuronal activation. So a huge cascade of brain activity that's going on underneath that that we haven't yet been able to probe fully. We know that it causes all these strange subjective experiences, but how that then affects the way that we hallucinate or our characters in our hallucinations or the feeling of ego boundlessness, we're still trying to work on and understand a bit better. I think it's fascinating the idea you just said of the brain talking to itself. Mm. That's really, really interesting. And then you're having all these experiences. That's wow. We hear that a lot about how we only use what is it like ten percent of our brain's capability. Right. Is it is it possible to say that psychedelics kind of expand that usage? No. So I think okay, cool, I think I uh, sorry to burst your bubble. Uh, I, I feel I think what psychedelics do are release the constraints upon the kind of patterns and models that we might have in our heads now let me break that down a little bit so obviously our environment we need to interpret that and interact with it and to do that our brain effectively imprints all the way that we interact in our environment in sort of models like frameworks or scaffoldings in our brain now over time um, that scaffolding gets more and more reinforced the more and more we do something or let's say we're having a certain negative thinking pattern that might get more reinforced the more we think about it or the more we interact with it now the way that psychedelics might work or the way people think psychedelics might work um, is by kind of loosening those scaffolds a little bit more 
And what that allows our brain to do is maybe make new connections that we couldn't have done before and maybe makes the way that we think about the world a little bit more malleable. Mm-hmm. So then we're able, or someone who's quite skilled, is able to interact with someone and maybe try and reframe those models to help someone be a bit healthier, perhaps, or maybe help them in their well-being and improve that. These drugs change the way our brain cells talk to each other. Exactly. And so crucially, in mental health conditions, often the way that our brain cells talk to each other is negatively negatively regulated Mm. or disordered. And as Joe explains, these disorders are complicated and multifaceted. But it seems that harnessing some of the properties of these drugs in in a controlled medical setting um, could be really useful for some conditions that can be enormously debilitating and even life-threatening. So this brings us on to the interesting point then that researchers are trying to look at how we use certain class A drugs to treat people with um, mental health issues or um, psychotic disorders. Hmm. What's your, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so um, I think the most interesting ones, there's three really interesting compounds that seem to have uh, promise at the moment. So MDMA seems to be really helpful um, for people with PTSD, or at least the early phase trials seem to suggest so. Now that's just been released for phase two trials in America on like a fast track access. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's some controversy around should it be fast tracked given the little evidence, and is it being um, maybe kind of emphasised more because of its popularity? Um, so that's that's one thing. Uh, ketamine for depression seems to be really, really useful um, in terms of short-acting um, reversal of depressive symptoms. So they've they found in early trials, and um, my colleague uh, Vasilea Kotofalu is doing some really interesting work looking at depression and looking at how ketamine might help alleviate in the short term depressive symptoms. So if someone came in with a, to acute care and was particularly suicidal, ketamine might show promise to actually overcome that. Why? We still don't know yet, but we're researching it. Could that um, go back to the serotonin thing? So ketamine is a glutamatergic Because oh, okay. um, I, I always drug. thought that depression was um, issues with the serotonin pathway. So depression um, is probably a lot more complex than that. And I, okay, think, okay. I think it's really useful to think about our minds is sort of a very complex series of structures that are talking to each other like a city and lots of different cities have lots of different companies within them and those companies constantly talk to each other through different channels so the uh, neurotransmitters are sort of the the messengers that these structures communicate with any any uh, psychiatric disorder i'd say would never be able to be boiled down to just one neurotransmitter it's a complex network of things and it's more interesting probably to think about how these neurotransmitters communicate within different structures of the brain and how they are used to communicate through different channels and models that we might have created but again this is kind of speculative and we're kind of working on how that might happen but just saying it's serotonin or, or dopamine or glutamate might be a little bit uh, reductive I think okay. at this point yeah fair enough well, we're glad you're here in that case <laughs> <laughs> so we have MTMA for PTSD yeah ketamine for depression what mm. was the third one so psilocybin for depression okay um, that's a good thing because I was going to say that um, MDMA and ketamine I mean they sound like naughties you know, you really, really shouldn't be. Whatever, you shouldn't take any of these. By law. It's just fascinating to think that these might have some kind of mental health benefit. So, tell us about the psilocybin. Yeah, so uh, Imperial College um, and um, 
John Hopkins University, uh, both are kind of looking into this, and also King's College London. Uh, the lab I'm at actually looks into psilocybin and depression as well, people mm. like James Stone and Mittal Meta. Um, and what they found in early trials is that psilocybin seems to help people with treatment-resistant depression. Now, treatment-resistant depression are people that have tried two different kinds of treatment for the depression. It might be psychological or pharmacological, but for whatever reason, um, it, it just doesn't seem to help alleviate the symptoms or the symptoms persist. Uh, and it's quite distressing if you can imagine having something constantly being at you all the time and nothing mm-hmm. is able to kind of take that off your shoulders. Um, so there was a small open label trial. So that, what that means is it's not blinded. Everyone knows what they're getting. Um, and they found that people who took psilocybin had uh, a significant reduction in their depression symptoms. And that was the same six months after. Now, that's really promising in early trials. And I think that's really great. And actually really fascinating to find these new compounds doing something quite interesting in psych- psychiatry where there seems to be a bit of a... A sticking point at the moment and how, how we help people because these, these disorders are very complex um, as all are humans obviously um, but I think we shouldn't get carried away with these early results so the early results are really interesting does this mean that psychedelics are the cure-all for everything probably not um, and we really need to kind of look in a bit further into what exactly it's doing in the brain and also look in a bigger sample of people because I think that's really important so I'd love to know um how you're looking into all of this stuff so a bigger sample of people how do, how do you test something like this so what the gold standard is in research or what the th- kind of standard is that everyone thinks they should um, be aligned to mostly because it seems the least bias is a thing called a, a randomized control trial what that means is let's say i got 50 people in um to my psilocybin and depression trial and they all have depression um let's just for argument's sake they all had treatment resistant depression um and they'd had it for the same amount of time now that's impossible in any sample but let's just imagine what i would do is i would randomize them so i'd go um without me choosing with a a computer generating these numbers um i'm going to assign some people to take placebo and some people to take psilocybin right and then at the end i'd look at my results and i'd say did the psilocybin group experience but greater reduction in the depression symptoms than the placebo group. So effectively what that's saying is when I'm blinded, when I don't know what they're getting and the participants don't know what they're getting, which kind of removes a little bit of expectation, do we still see the same results? There's a little bit of difficulty with psilocybin, understandably, because it has such profound subjective effects. Mm. It's really hard to blind someone to it. So Mm. if you imagine the profound effects of psilocybin and then giving someone placebo, they're probably going to know immediately if they've had mushrooms or not of course yeah so it's it's really hard to blind people in these studies but there's a really interesting study that was done in brazil um using ayahuasca so ayahuasca is this really fascinating kind of um shamanic tea that's made from two vines and one of the vines contains a chemical called dmt uh, and this is a very potent psychedelic compound but usually if we eat it our body digests it so quickly that you never see any of the effects but quite mysteriously this vine was found to be combined with another vine which contains a thing called a monoamine oxidase inhibitor and what that does is it prevents things like serotonin and dopamine from being broken down in our brain so this sort of strange um, coincidence of mixing vines seems to produce this effect where dmt is able to be retained in the brain without getting broken down and what ensues is about a five or six hour psychedelic experience that 
many describe as incredibly profound. Um, so actually, they did a, a double-blind placebo-controlled trial using ayahuasca. And one of the side effects from ayahuasca is that you get nauseous, right? So what they did is they, their placebo, they added in um, sort of a, a compound in there to make you feel a little bit nauseous. So you thought you might have had psilocybin, uh, psilocybin, ayahuasca. <laughs> and they found in this placebo-controlled trial that people with ayahuasca had a significant reduction in their depressive symptoms, which is super interesting. Is this the one that I've heard about in South America where people go because they want to forget a certain experience? Uh, or could that be something else? Forget me now? Forget me now. That's an arrested development. Oh, okay. <laughs> you always the pills that Michael makes. Yeah, that's really funny. So just, just to wrap up on this, I went to a talk that was actually a tech conference mm-hmm. and they brought in somebody from Silicon Valley who um, <laughs> yeah. was talking to us about how he uses microdosing to A, be more creative and innovative um, and B, get more work done. Mm. And I was really flabbergasted that I was at this talk, I was supposed to be there for work and I thought, you know what, my, my boss didn't send me here for this kind of thing. Mm. But it was really, really fascinating. And he asked the audience, how many people microdose? This conference was in Amsterdam. But still, lots of people said yes, they do. And I'd never even heard about this before. Can it really make you more innovative and not need sleep? Uh, my, again, sorry to burst your bubble, yeah. but I feel like my... I wasn't going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, give it a try. You never know. But my my hypothesis would be that it doesn't really do anything. And most of it is probably placebo. Oh, wow. Um, so if you think about it, and this is genuine, this is the area that I love. Uh, it's my research area. So belief and expectation. How much, when we expect something to happen, will it happen? Um, and we're actually doing a, um, a study at the Science Gallery at the moment using caffeine to take a look at this effect. But basically, microdosing, for people who don't know, is taking sub-threshold doses over uh, every three days of psychedelics. Now, this doesn't have any kind of acute effects that you might have on a full mushroom trip, for example, but it's meant to have enough that it kind of loosens these scaffolds in our mind a little bit, enough for us to be creative. Now, there's a lot of assumptions there about how the mind works that I don't quite know is justified yet that we can say that or that people can say that. Why anecdotally it might work? Maybe because people are telling themselves it might work, just in the way that if you're taking multivitamins, you might feel healthier, just in the way that um, expectedly some of meditation's effects are probably because you're just giving yourself time um, in the day to, to expect yourself to be a bit clear-headed, and therefore maybe you are going to be more clear-headed. Is there any mechanistic effects on actually being more creative besides uh, placebo? I don't know. Um, there's actually a study going on at the moment uh, by Imperial, a big survey study asking people from around the world to basically do their own home-tested, randomised um, microdosing study, which is really interesting. <laughs> but then it brings like a whole thing in of, you know, how much are people actually abiding by the protocol? But it's a really great first step. At the moment, I wouldn't say that it was probably doing anything more than if you tell yourself it's doing something. Um, Probably just like a fad diet or multivitamins. But you never know. (laughs) I don't know. I genuinely don't know. But uh, as that's my kind of that's my my hunch. Okay. Yeah. My thoughts when we're talking about how these drugs are tested in the lab Mm. is how how are researchers permitted to use these drugs in the lab? Yeah, so you have to apply for a, a Schedule 1 licence, um, and that's very tightly restricted and very expensive for universities, so any um, universities with good funding tend to have them. Um, and then 
using them has to be tightly restricted. So the protocol itself um, that you have for these studies uh, is very rigorous and very stringent and has to be done by the book effectively for every single person, which is which is fair enough. Um, and also good for science, obviously. Mm. Um, and then you can't just kind of order it from anywhere. You have to kind of order it from from special places. You can't just kind of get street psilocybin. <laughs> yeah, well, well, that's good to know, right? Yeah. That people are just getting them off the street because then that's usually cut with horrible stuff and it might not be the exact compound that you want to look at right so that's a good thing exactly and it tends to be the more it's illegalized in different countries uh the more easy it is to get so like cannabis for example is probably better regulated in more countries mm. and so ordering it in isn't so much of an issue but things like psilocybin and, and, and magic mushrooms might be harder okay to, to get in because it's more difficult to make legally in different countries so that brings us on again to this problem that we really, really need to research what's going on before we can use um, these principles for mental health conditions. Mm. But we're not really allowed to work on it that easily. What do you think about that? Yeah, so there's two things here. There's one thing where I think there's a big movement toward legalising psychedelics um, and just for anyone to use because people think it's a really good idea because it will help a lot of people. Um, and there's another there's another thing that is it should be legalised for research to understand it better. Now I'm a proponent of it being legalised for research purposes because obviously we need to we need to understand it better if we're then going to start saying that it's useful for depression or, or PTSD, right? It needs to be as rigorously researched as antidepressants, right? Even though it's argued that you know antidepressants are given out quite easily, but seeing as these psychedelics show such promise. Um, for, for helping people like, who have depression or PTSD, it is vital that it's legalised for research. Should it be legalised for public consumption? Um, possibly, but, but regulated. Um, but should it be for the purposes of people thinking they're going to cure everything that they have wrong with them? Probably not. This is really interesting because it seems like these could be really promising, but they are still illegal, right? And they still have a really bad reputation. Yeah, exactly. So we do have to be careful. Mm. And on the flip side, however, many people who've worked in this area have spoken out against the prohibition of these drugs and particularly the scientific and medical research of these drugs, which we're still really not allowed to do um, as they believe the benefits could be incredible in fact, actually, shortly after his um, 101st birthday, Albert Hoffman, the guy who <laughs> discovered LSD, yeah. wrote a letter to Steve Jobs. To Steve Jobs? He basically said, <laughs> I think the letter was, Dear Steve Jobs, hi from Albert Hoffman. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard you've taken LSD. If you could take some time out of your busy schedule to get on board or get behind this, um, what was it? So it was a study investigating the use of LSD in... Um, in uh, or LSD conjugated psychotherapy, so LSD and talking kind of therapy for things like depression, I think it was. Okay. Um, but he implores him to help with, in quotation marks, the transformation of my problem child into a wonder child. <gasps> my problem child? Yeah, so I really get the feeling that Albert Hoffman was kind of haunted by the fact yeah. that this thing that he discovered that had immense power to really help people yeah. had been misused and kind of made synonymous with like a really bad culture of drug taking i mean it's actually quite heartbreaking because he probably thought i'm gonna do so much good Mm. with this discovery yeah 
So he, he also in his life spent a, a bit of extra history. Sorry, I love this. Um, he spent a lot of time traveling through kind of um, different communities that use um, that use kind of herbs and things like that and, and things that induce hallucinations as part of their spiritual rituals and stuff like that. Okay. But Albert Hoffman kind of believes that a closer connection to the mystical way of living would be the only way that humanity could survive. Okay. Yeah. I don't know if it's worth mentioning this, but Steve Jobs was such an interesting character, wasn't he? Because he became very ill. Mm. And um, you know, people talk about how he thought that he could eat himself better. Yeah. You know, with a, a particular diet and, mm. and all of those things. And I think sometimes some of this stuff can become, I know I always say this, it can become quite emotive and you sort of attach so much hope to one thing whether it be a healthy diet or psilocybin or whatever it's um yeah it's quite a complex you're you're so right and I think it's it's really it's something in human nature yeah to find hope in things that could help alleviate some of our biggest woes yeah but you're right we do have to be cautious when we're talking yeah. about this and that, and you can tell that from from the rhetoric i mean my problem child exactly you know, he see he saw it as his baby mm. yeah um i feel like we've got to be careful not to give too much of a positive light to drugs because we are talking about class a illegal drugs that cause so many problems amongst the people who take them yeah definitely and they've they've there's no doubt that they've ripped lives apart completely and we can't ignore that and for me i also can't ignore the fact that i i've seen that there is a link between for example things like marijuana and psychosis and development of schizophrenia and that is a fact it's not hugely common but it does happen and as a scientist I can't ignore that because I say you can't say let everyone take these drugs because there is there are still risks attached to these these aren't miracle um compounds are they no they're not they're certainly not miracle compounds but they're probably not as risky as you might think okay so so cannabis for example um it it has have it does have a link with psychosis definitely has an association um but it's more likely to be a rare side effect then you can probably think of it as a rare side effect more than that it, it does cause psychosis. So is this in, in people perhaps who are um, who have like a genetic susceptibility to psychosis anyway? So there's a number of things, yeah. So um, there's probably a, a genetic and environmental susceptibility okay. to, to get psychosis. Um, and cannabis probably might exacerbate that. But the cannabis thing, I, I don't see why it would be a problem to legalise it. Um, I mean, alcohol is probably probably more harmful yeah um and that has the side effect of having depression right and lethargy um and i think cannabis should be viewed in the same light as that of like it, the side effect is is possibly uh, paranoia and psychosis which is absolutely awful and if anything that says we need to understand how it works more so we can then understand who how we can educate people and who might be vulnerable and who might not be because mm. should everyone be able to take everything probably not i probably couldn't take everything because I, I i know what i'm what my risks are what my limits are so that really comes into it and it's all about education if we can educate people about the risks it's then on their autonomous decision about what they'd like to do i will say that education is only built upon good research and until it's kind of able to be researched properly, it's very difficult to educate people on the risks and the benefits, except by kind of giving your best educated guess. 
So it all comes back down to research. Always. <laughs> but this could just mean perpetuating my career. Yeah, we always need more money in research. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Is there anything you'd like to plug? Uh, I'd like to plug my public engagement project, Senscapes, uh, where we turn brainwaves into music and art. Um, you can find us at www.senscapes.com. Uh, we're doing some interesting work. We've just done um, an exhibition on psilocybin, and we're going to be doing one on meditation. So check us out. Um, and I'd also like to plug my study that I'm running as part, as part of my PhD, um, looking at the effects of dopamine on the way that we believe and interact with the world. Mm. So it's really important that we understand the neuroscience of belief, especially when it relates to delusions and, and illness. Um, and so well, I'm looking for healthy males, unfortunately, just males. Yeah, I know, <laughs> sorry. Um, so give me an email or DM me on Twitter okay. if you want to take part. And you're in London. <laughs> Brilliant. So we will we will link all of that and your Twitter on our show notes. All right. Well, Joe, thank you so much for that. That was really, really interesting. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Thank you for being here. That's it for this week. Remember, you can find us on Twitter at FrankenWinePod or send us an email, frankenwinepod at gmail.com. We love hearing from you. You've been listening to Frankenwine. This episode was written and presented by Emma Begg and Katie Beck with editorial assistance from Daniel O'Donnell.